Glad to be with you this morning, and uh, happy Thanksgiving. Good to see extra family here, uh, our guests. We're glad that you're with us. Uh, one thing we'd like for you to note is that right in front of you is a red pew Bible. And uh, love for you to either use that or take that home as our gift to you. If you don't have one, feel free to take that. You'll be helped if you uh, keep that open on your lap uh, as we work uh, through our scriptures this morning. So we're starting a new series, as Pastor Pat said, called All Sides of the Savior. And what we're going to do during this season of Advent is to see who Jesus really needs to be in order to be the Savior of the world. As private as his birth was without the world's fanfare, as humble as his birth was, right, in a manger, not in a palace, Jesus still had to fulfill certain key roles in order to be the true Messiah. And so you've heard it throughout this whole service, but in one person, Christ had to be prophet priest, and king. Now, if you're new to using God's word, that prophet, priest, and king, as we divide our Bible into Old Testament and New, in the Old Testament, it was kind of established there was prophets, there was priests, and there was kings. And then we're going to see that in the New Testament, Christ fulfills all of those in one person. And we're going to take four weeks to take a closer look at all sides of our Savior. Now, you might be wondering, Josh, why would I want to know about all sides of the Savior, especially during Advent? This is prime real estate time, and you're going to talk to me about all sides of the Savior during Advent? Well, I understand it might not quite hit that sweet Christmas tooth of Christmas nostalgia. Why aren't we in Luke chapter 1 or Matthew chapter 1 with the birth of Christ? The birth of Christ? But let me ask this question back to you. How can you worship Christ in Advent? without knowing all that he came to be and to do. How can you do that if you really don't understand who Jesus is and what he came to do? I think you'll actually be excited about looking at all sides of the Savior because they actually will connect with all sides in your life. You will be able to experience him. Because all of us need Christ to be a prophet in our life. All of us need Christ to be a priest in our life. All of us need Christ to be a king. Let me put this in a context for you, especially in this Christmas season. If we just focus on Jesus coming as a a baby in a manger in Bethlehem, it will distort your view of Christ. That's all that you see him as. If Christ was human, that's definitely what that proves, but he also was divine. He's God. And you can't separate who he is, right, from his work, what he came to do. Everything Jesus does, everything Jesus did in the Bible can actually be kind of categorized as either a prophet, a priest, or a king. So track with me. We're not really just going to make explanations of the threefold offices of Christ. We're not here just to go, wow, that guy has really studied all week long. Has he actually met a person on the street, never talked to them? That's not what we're going to do, okay? We're not even here just to make mere suggestions in your life. What we are here over the next month to do is actually to make assertions that Christ is the prophet. Christ is our great high priest. Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so we greet you in the name of Jesus Christ, prophet, priest, and king. In order to get this, 
we're going to have to exercise our theological muscles. Those of you that go to the gym, you know that if you want to get stronger, right, you have to put your muscles underneath some pressure. And if you're in the gym that allows you to use weights and not bands and those kinds of things, but real clunk weights, you put those on the bar, you realize that as you are lifting those, and if you want to get stronger, have you ever felt weaker? That as you begin to pick up that deadlift and you say, I can't do another one. As you get in that squat rack and you go down, you wonder if you need a spotter because as you're trying to get stronger, sometimes you actually feel weaker. And if not, if you're not putting that kind of pressure on yourself, someone would just say, hey, get yoked. It's too light. You're not going to make any progress with those girly weights, right? Put some more weight on the bar. And so today in this sermon, you might feel a little bit of pressure. In the words of Damon Waynes in Major Pain, you might want to even call me Pastor Pain because we have to exercise our spiritual muscles. We have to put ourselves underneath some pressure to get this weight. Here we're trying to build an argument that Christ must fulfill each office, and those offices cannot be separated. They can't even be independent of each other. So are you ready for a little bit of pressure? You ready to get in the squat rack and lift a little bit? Think with me about one theological truth, a truth from God's word that if you don't get this right, what implications it would have for your life. You can notice this. Many of us have come from these other denominations, but the modern day liberal denominations only want Jesus as prophet. Okay? We're not going to list those because we even hope in some of those denominations are still believers there. But many of you have left there and have come to this church because they have denied that Christ is priest because they don't think we need a substitute to save us from our sins. There are denominations out there that say, I want to dismiss that bloody cross religion. And so they just want to focus on that Christ has come here And he's come here to reveal a lot of really good things about God. Christ is a really good teacher. And they can't buy into the fact that Christ could be the divine Savior or that Christ is the Almighty King. And so they reduce Christ. They distort Christ to only be a teacher of morality. You want to live a better life? Try to live the life of Christ. Try to follow his teachings. But friends... Have you actually ever tried for one whole day to love your neighbor as yourself? With that kind of imagination, with that kind of determinism? I wonder why we would want to leave there and say, that's not freeing to find Christ only as my prophet. To find Christ only as my teacher only makes me feel more guilty. Others, in evangelical churches like ourselves, maybe we neglect Christ as prophet and king, and we only want Christ as priest. Here's how this works in our church. We love that Jesus Christ is our Redeemer and our Savior, and it's His job to forgive us. Right? We love the idea that Christ is our Redeemer and Savior, but our own thoughts, our own intuitions, our own thinking is really our prophet and king. I get to decide what is true for me. I get to decide how I want to live my life. I don't want Christ as prophet. 
I don't want Christ as king. I just like the idea that he loves me, that he forgives me, and that he's always with me. Friends, that is not Christianity. Imagine telling me, Josh, I believe your name is Joshua Ames Owens. Josh Owens, stay out. But Ames, you can come on in. I would say, how do I separate myself? I'm Joshua Ames Owens. You like Josh, you like Owens. I'm allowed to come into your house, but Ames, you got to stay out. I'd say, is that my left arm? Is that my right arm? I mean, I, I don't know how to separate myself. And Jesus Christ, you cannot only have him as priest and prophet. You can't only have Jesus as only king. He's all prophet. He's all priest. He's all king. You can't just have one little slice of him, a slice that you like. So are you tracking with me that if we distort Christ, if we only look at him from one side, we'll miss out all of who he really is. And so what we're going to do in these next couple of weeks is really get a helicopter view of the whole Bible. If you're new to Christianity and you want to understand it, these next four weeks, they might have you doing some heavy lifting. You might feel weaker. You might need to take notes. You might need to keep that Bible open. But I hope it will show you a comprehensive tour of the Old and New Testament. And so here's a little bit of a, a tease for you. We're going to be flipping our Bible pages a lot. Now, if you're our guest, what I'm going to do is I'm going to encourage you to use that Red Pew Bible, and I'm going to give you the page number. Because here's what I've heard from some of our friends throughout the years. Josh, once we flip beyond three passages, I get tired and I give up. I know some of you are out there like, okay, I'll track with you one, I'll flip to number two, I might flip back to number one with you if I keep my finger there, but Josh, if you ask any more flipping of me, I'm done. Well, we're in the weight room, so I'm going to ask you, try to just do one more than you normally do, and if you don't use any at all, you've never done this, it's okay to use the table of contents, the big numbers are the chapters, the small numbers are the verses, and I'm going to give you the page numbers if you use that red pew Bible. Let's turn to our first one, Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18, so the big number 18 is the chapter, small numbers are the verses. It is page 161 in that red pew Bible. Pages are flapping. Your screens can be glowing as long as they're swiping in that ESV app, all right? This is not to update your Instagram. Deuteronomy 18. Wasn't the church singing good, though, this morning? Amen. Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 22. As you're turning there, let's get the context. We're jumping into Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy is a passage or a book of the Bible that Moses wrote. At this point in time, Moses is in retirement. You can identify he has memories enough to spare for years of reflection. Okay, He can think back over the long bit of time in his life, and now he is giving the children of Israel the law of God for the second time. Deuteronomy just literally means second law giving. He's giving it a second time because the first time he gave the law to the children of Israel, they disobeyed, and they all died in the wilderness wandering around for 40 years as part of God's punishment. Now, there's the younger generation. They're about ready to go into the promised land. Moses is not allowed to lead them in. It's Joshua who's going to do that. And he wants to give them the law again because he knows it is crucial for them to hear God's word again, to be able to enter into the promised land and remember what God has said. That's where we are. All right? Here are the most important matters for their future as Moses leads them. Verse 15. 
The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. The Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet, who presumes to speak a word in my name, that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. The first thing that we learn is that a prophet is required. For the copious note takers, first point, a prophet is required. It's right there in verses 15 through 16. The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Now this happens in the context of them receiving the law of God on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 20. You don't have to turn back there. I'm just going to read this one for you. Exodus 20, verses 18 through 19. Moses on the mountain. Moses is receiving the Ten Commandments. And when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood afar off. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, or we'll die. You see what's happening? These people have seen the earth move. Rocks have broken up. But the most dreadful sound of all was the voice of the Almighty God. And the people beg for Moses to intervene and to be a prophet for them. You speak to us, Moses. We'll do whatever you say. The people of God rejected God's unmediated presence was too holy for them. And doesn't that get right at the heart of our predicament as humans? You know, our fundamental need on why we need a prophet is because our relationship with our creator is broken. Left to ourselves, the Bible says we're ignorant of God. Fast forward to the New Testament, and you'll hear verses like this from the Apostle Paul. Don't turn there, but Romans 1.21 says, For although they knew God, they didn't honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But here it is, they became futile in their own thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. It's a heart and mind connection. Ephesians 4.18, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of why? the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. Finally, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says, the natural person, person outside of Christ, doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. They're foolish. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The reason why we need a prophet is to dethrone our ignorance. Right? Practically, what this means is that your relationship with God is based on communication. 
which means this, there is a body of truth that God brings to you. You just can't commune with God by going out to the most beautiful spots in nature and just kind of sit there and go, ooh, I just kind of feel his presence. I know many people that say, I'm closest to God, right, when I'm just walking through the woods. When I just see that vista, when I just see that mountain range, I just hmm, get the tingles. That's not how you relate to this God. He brings truth into our relationship. We actually have to listen to his voice. That begs the question. You're here this morning. Somebody brought you. Maybe a friend invited you. This is your church home. Maybe you're a relative and you had to come. But here's the question. Do you want to hear God's voice? If so, how do you hear the voice of God? I think deep down inside all of us, even those of us that were dragged here, we want to hear a voice beyond the universe. We crave that in our hearts. Because you know what I think we ultimately crave? Certainty. I want to be certain. I want to know what I should do with my life. I want to know if this is the way I should go, if this is the person I should marry, if this is the job that I should take. We want certainty on how it's going to work out. And guess what? Just like that, we are in the exact same boat as the children of Israel. Track with me. The children of Israel have been sojourners in a land for 40 years, traveling around. Now they're going to be farmers. They're going to possess a land, settle down, and they're going to be surrounded by other nation, nations, other cultures, other religious worldviews. You know what's going to happen? People are going to come up to them, and they're going to say, you want to know how you get a certain crop? Think back. The Israelites every day for 40 years got manna. No longer do they get manna. Now they have to go in there and do their own farming. You want to know how you get a certain crop? You want to know how you get that job? You consult the witches. You, you, you read these omens. You consult these mediums. You, you worship the priestess here. You make a sacrifice there. That's how you get certainty, Israel. That's all around them. Just look back at Deuteronomy 18, verses 9 through 14, and you can see that all around them, there are people that are telling them, this is how you get certainty. But in Deuteronomy 18, 12, all these other practices the Lord calls an abomination. It's an abomination. This is not the way you go about to hear the voice of God. Why consult the father of lies when there is the father of truth who's willing to speak? All you have to do, Christian, is open up your Bible, dust it off, and you actually get to hear God's word. The voice of God comes through his authorized spokesperson, the prophet. If you want to know what a prophet is, a prophet is really just simply the mouthpiece for God. Sometimes it helps to understand something by contrasting it. Let's compare a prophet to a priest. A priest is someone who goes on behalf of people to God. A prophet is someone who speaks on behalf of God to the people. So a priest might offer prayers on behalf of the people to God, saying, your people, your people. But a prophet is someone who uses God's word and brings it to them and says, thus says the Lord. That's how it works. Whatever a prophet says is what God says. 
2 Peter 1.21, For there is no prophecy ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We are arguing today that in our postmodern, relativistic, what's true for you doesn't have to be true for me, that there is objective truth. That's what we're saying this morning. There is objective truth. Prophets are not giving you their interpretation of what they think God is like. Prophets are saying, this is what God thinks. This is the very voice of God. So it is not up to you to look inside yourself. It is not up to you to decide what is true. It is not up to the tarot cards. It is not up to crystal balls or channeling mediums. It is possible to know what God thinks as he reveals himself in his written word. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God. And here it is. It's profitable for teaching, for correction, for training in righteousness, that you, the man of God, may be complete, equipped for every good work. Friend, if you are here and you are not a Christian, I realize that so far this sermon has been like chewing on a piece of glass with all of its sharp edges. It must be difficult to hear a pastor say there is objective truth that you don't get to decide what is right and wrong. Thank you for your patience. We are glad you're here. We welcome you. Even after the service, I'd love to answer your questions as best I could or to hear what you think. But here's where Christians could maybe sympathize with you a little bit. If you're feeling like I've just been chewing on glass, I'm bleeding all over the place. Even though Christians have come to believe the Bible is literally true, we can identify with you in this. None of us likes to be told what to do. Any amens? I was raised in D.C. I got to take field trips to the best museums in the nation. Okay? And nothing like a museum curator seeing a motley crew of junior high boys makes him walk from his post over to us doing nothing, of course, yet, and say, don't touch anything. <laughs> Got that a lot. <laughs> Must have been the haircut. I don't know, all right? But you know what? In our hearts, immediately spring up this response. Maybe you see it in yourself, even in your kids. I wasn't gonna, but now I kind of wanna. I mean, it's just like, as soon as you say, don't touch it, you're like, yeah, I want to touch. I didn't even have it on my mind, you know? I didn't want to get in trouble. I didn't want to walk around with the principal all day. But now that you tell me, don't do it, I'm thinking, oh, yeah, when you're not looking, buddy, ding. Right? Not at the museum all over again happening there, right? So let me just ask you to consider this. None of us likes being told what to do. So let me just ask you. If you're here as a non-Christian, what are your motives for rejecting the concept of truth? All of us have motives. None of us come in there blank. You know, people prefer to not have a God. People prefer to have a remote, distant, dumb, blind God because he makes less clear demands, he asks no questions, he makes no promises, and he threatens no judgment. And so John chapter 3 says, the light came into the world, but the people loved darkness rather than light because their works were evil. What's at stake if you consider yourself to be your own truth finder? 
What's at stake if you consider yourself to be your own truth bringer? Turn over to the book of Hebrews chapter 12. That's page 1009. This is number two of flipping. Come on, you can do two. Hebrews chapter 12. Again, the large number is the chapter, small numbers of the verses, page 1009 in that red Bible. What's at stake if you consider yourself to be your own truth bringer? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. This is picking up that same story in Exodus where they're asking for someone else to intervene for them because they're scared. And he's going to make an argument from lesser to greater. If they were scared then, how much more should you be scared now? That's the argument. You ready? Verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Even their spokesperson was afraid. Verse 22, but you have come, that was then but now, but you, Hebrews, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in in feastal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirit of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So if they were scared of the mountain, now you are able to go into the heavenly places. What's the warning? Look at verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. If God comes down in a prophet and speaks through a prophet, what about Jesus Christ who ascended up into heaven, who speaks as the prophet? I've met someone one time that says, if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm going to have a word with him. How arrogant, how foolish, oh man, you are going to have a word with God, you who stand a mere six feet above the earth, who last a mere 60 or 70 years, and then a wind blows you over into eternity, you're going to have a word with the Lord who speaks from the heavens? No, the Bible warns you against rejecting God's word, you will not have words. The Bible warns you, but it does invite you to accept them instead. Well, who is this he that is speaking here in Hebrews 12? Let's consider our second point. Copious note takers number two, a prophet is is revealed. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 18, verses 17 through 18. Here's the hint that we get that there's one coming later. Deuteronomy 18, verse 17. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they've spoken. Verse 18. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among your brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command them. That's a promise. 
How is it going to be fulfilled? There's going to be one coming later who's going to be this prophet who's going to speak to them. We know that we have prophets in the rest of the Bible. If you're new to reading the Bible, you kind of just flip through after Psalms and Proverbs, and you get all these guys who have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Obadiah. It seems to be kind of a theme, okay? You have to have the I-A-A-H at the end in order to become a prophet. There's major prophets, there's minor prophets. It's based upon how much they wrote. Interesting little fact for you. If you ever read through Jeremiah, it's the book with the most words. It even beats Psalms. There's more words in Jeremiah than there is in any other book. He's one of those major prophets. But do they fulfill this promise that there's going to come a prophet after them? No, they can't fulfill this text. Why? Look at 1818 again. I will raise up for them a what? Prophet. Singular. One. Only one, a singular prophet, not a line of prophets like we have in the Old Testament. There must be a prophet, and that prophet must be like Moses, who is going to speak face to face with God. So who is this guy? Who is this prophet? The best way to see what the Old Testament conceals is to flip to the New Testament, and it's going to reveal it. The great thing about Deuteronomy 18.18, church gets this, this verse is quoted two times in the New Testament. Flip over to, chapter, to Acts, that's page 911 in your pew Bible. Acts, chapter 3, verses 17 through 26. In Acts 3, this is the first time that Deuteronomy 18, 18 is quoted. It's part of Peter's sermon on why this lame man was healed. Part of a prophet's ministry was to do miraculous signs to prove that his words were true. And Peter's going to use this to prove that Jesus Christ is the prophet. Let's look at Acts 3, small number, 22 through 23, the verses. This is Peter speaking. Moses said, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. Direct quote. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Well, who is this? Peter goes on to prove in verses 18 that this prophet is Jesus. Look at 3.18. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Skip down to 20. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ, appointed for you Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Here's all these prophets. Christ is the prophet. Not only does Christ prophesy, but he is the subject of all of the prophets prophesying. He's the one to whom all the prophets point. And not just the prophets. What does that matter? Even God the Father points to Jesus Christ. Turn back in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, verse 35. That's page 867. Luke chapter 9, verse 35. This is Jesus Christ being transfigured on the mountain. And he is transfigured in between Moses and Elijah, the two great prophets. Luke chapter 9, verse 35. And now we have God identifying Jesus as the long-promised prophet. Luke 9, 35. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. But Luke, when he writes in Greek, he puts it in the exact same word order as Deuteronomy 18. He says, this is my son, my chosen one, 
it is to him you shall listen. All of a sudden, all these bells are going off for people. Whoa! We have it based upon apostolic authority. The fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18 is Jesus Christ from Peter. Now we have God the Father opening up heaven saying, this is my son. It is to him you shall listen. Whoa, he is this prophet that is coming. God is saying that Jesus is not a repetition of Moses, but Jesus is the very completion. Yeah, there are a lot of similarities between Jesus and Moses. Both were spared death as a baby. Both made intercession for the people of Israel. Both spoke to God face to face, but I think the main point is that Christ is a greater Moses. Turn now to Hebrews chapter 3. I know we're picking up the speed. You might be feeling weak. There's a protein shake at the back. It's called coffee. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 3, verses 2 through 6. It's page 1002. The author of the Hebrews wants you to see that Christ is better than the prophet Moses. He's not just one more prophet. He is the prophet. Here it is in 2 through 6. Jesus, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus had been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory. How? As the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. What's his point? Moses was a servant of God, but Christ is the son of God. Where Moses was allowed to see the glory of God when it passed by him, he was able to see the back of the Lord. Christ, it says in John 1, is the glory of God. John 1, 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father. Moses dispersed the word of God, but Jesus Christ says, I am the word of God. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He says, I'm not just giving you the Word, I am the Word. I am the perfect revelation of what the Father is. Word. Look at me. Moses was sinful, Christ was sinless. Moses offered a covenant, we had to sacrifice continually. Christ did it once, sat down, done, over. Moses could only give the law, but Christ gave grace and truth. That's what they all say. But what does Christ say about himself? The prophets point to him, but does Christ have the credentials to actually point to himself? It's one thing for other people to say, oh, he's the guy. He's the guy. Let's look to him. Popular vote. We want that guy. But do you actually have the confidence? Does Christ have the confidence to say, no, I am the prophet? We could prove this along a lot of different lines, but the most straightforward is to turn to the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapter 7. That's page 812. I believe this is the last one you have to turn to. So if you've fallen asleep, now it's time to wake up and flip one more time. Matthew 7. Matthew 7, verse 28. It's the end of his sermon, and we want to notice that it is the crowds, not the disciples, who are astonished at his what? Teaching. 
They heard Christ speak as one with authority, not as their scribes. Now, the three offices are not scribe, priest, king. It is prophet, priest, king. A scribe can tell you a lot about God, but a prophet utters the very words of God. And Christ has the authority to utter the very words of God. See how he does it in Matthew in this Sermon on the Mount. Flip back to Matthew 5, 17. Here's his purpose. Don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That's his purpose. That is so different than the liberal churches today that want to tell you we can get rid of the Old Testament. We don't need the Old Testament. There are people today that want to unhitch the Old Testament from the New. No, Christ says, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. There isn't one jot, one tittle, one iota, one dot that won't pass away until I accomplish it. How does he do that? He goes, I'm not trying to destroy the Old Testament. I came here to crank it up a notch. And so he begins to go through. He goes, you've heard it said, don't murder. But listen to his authority. You've heard it's been said, don't murder. Old Testament, scripture, law. But I say unto you, anyone who's angry with a brother in his heart has already done it already. Who says? He's claiming divine authority. Everyone else is quoting scripture. And he goes, but I say to you. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you. He's not, a, he's not appealing to anybody else. He doesn't have a footnote. There's no citation. There's no reference. He's saying, verily, verily, I say unto you. Anyone who's lusted after a woman in his heart has already committed adultery already. He's cranking it up a notch. He is one that taught with authority. He has periods. He has exclamation points. We are saved by the thunderbolt of Christ's words. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Today, modern-day preaching wants to take the periods and let them kind of just slump down into commas, wants to take the exclamation points and turn them into question marks. Pastors want you to ask more questions and to doubt the Bible more. And Christ comes and says, do you want to leave as well? Do you want to go somewhere else and hear men's opinions? So he asked the disciples, do you want to go? Do you want to leave? The crowd stopped following him after a time. And it's a question for us. Do you want to leave? Do you want to go somewhere else? Well, Peter says in John 6, 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. The words of eternal life. Notice that word again. You have the words. How did we hear of salvation? We we hear it from you, Jesus. You're the prophet, the messianic prophet. We're not going to go away from you because you have the words of eternal life. So now we're in 2019. How is it that you heard the gospel? Because the word of Christ was brought to you. Paul explains in Romans 10, right? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's the the logical chain. How did you get born again? How did you get adopted? How did we become a church? Because somebody brought you God's word. Every single one of us, church, that are believers, has a word ministry. Whether formal, because you get to wear a tie on Sundays and preach from the pulpit, 
teaching a Sunday school class, or informal, like you are ministering the word in your front yard with your children. All of us have a word ministry. We go to God's word because Christ is the prophet, the prophet, and he has the words of eternal life. And so the church has been given the great commission. Go, baptize them, right? Making disciples of all nations. Here it is, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's your calling, church. It's a pattern laid out for us. God gives his word. The servants pass it on to others. And we continue to spread his word as his disciples. Christ is the prophet. And he continues his prophetic ministry through us, the church, through his written word. The question is, are we excited to come back to Scripture that when it gets open to us, we say, like in Luke 24, did not our hearts burn within us? Because he's the great prophet. He's the great teacher. As we prepare for communion, think about it like this. If you've dozed off, here it is. Come back, stretch, stretch, yawn. Okay, here it is. As you get older, some of us develop this thing called cataract. It's what happens when your eye is supposed to be transparent. It's supposed to be able to see but all of a sudden something kind of goes over your eye and you can't see as well as you used to, right? It begins to make everything cloudy and it's a perfect analogy of what our human soul is like. When God created you, the very first man and woman, our soul was transparent. It could see God and know him. But ever since sin entered into the world, we've had this cataract that has kind of went over our soul, our hearts. Now, friends, you can wash your eyes all you want. I'm not going to take away cataracts. You can rub them all you want. I'm not going to take away cataracts. You need a surgeon to come in and to give you sight. That's what Jesus Christ is. You say, Josh, you've been telling me all sermon that if I don't know Christ, I'm spiritually blind. How am I going to see? You know what the first step in the gospel is? Admitting that you can't see. That's the first step to seeing. God, I have allowed myself to be my own truth determiner. I decide what's right and wrong for me. I haven't seen you. And I just admit that I'm blind. And as soon as you start doing that, guess what happens? God begins to work in your life. And he begins to bring that surgery that we need to see him clearly so that we can see him for all of who he is. But it's not just for unbelievers here. Hey, church kids, kids that are raised in church, you know I have a passion for you. I was one of them. Most of you can say, and let's just include religious adults, you that have been in church for a long time. Most of you could say, you know, I know, I can see that Christ died on the cross for my sins and rose again. I've always believed that. I've always known that. I've heard most of people's testimonies in this church, and it kind of starts with something like that. But there's a difference, right, between saying I've always known that and actually treasuring that. You know, spiritual cataracts isn't just the inability to see that Jesus Christ is God. Spiritual cataracts also prevents you from actually appreciating that treasuring that, centering your whole life around it. I don't know if you're anything like me, but about a thousand times every day, I make myself the center of the universe. Anybody else? Only me. Only me, okay. Well, thank you for your grace. 
I'm exhibit A in that. And every single day, I need to come back to God, Jesus Christ, through his word, to shave off that cataract to begin to see the world clearly. Because when I put myself in the center of the universe, it is like a washing machine that has that whole quilt stuck on one side, and it begins to jump and thump because it is off-center. You know what's really bad, church kid? Being a Christian snob. There is no room for those that have seen Christ as prophet to go, I already know that. There is no room for a Christian snob. There is not even room for a bored Christian. I've heard that story a gazillion times. I can say it better than the pastor. No, because when Christ walked with the two on the road to Emmaus and he opened up them the scriptures, their hearts burned within them. Friend, when's the last time that God's word burned and radiated in your heart? Because he's the prophet who brings life to all that want to see. Friend, you might know it all. But this morning, even as a believer, you might have allowed spiritual cataract to kind of creep in through the week. And we have to come here and wash it and clean it through divine surgery. If you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, this table is for all that Christ has done for you. That's what separates Christianity from every other religious good deed. Christ comes and he speaks to you his word, and he pronounces you a son or a daughter, and he welcomes you to your table, and all you have to do is say that you're unworthy. Bring your limp to the table. This is not about what you can do to say, God, I will start trying to follow your word again. I'll be more diligent. Let me remind you, who's actually lived longer than one moment, love your neighbor as yourself? That should be a curse to you, not a mantra that you should have over your doorpost. Because none of us can. Come and feast on the one who's done it all, the living word who came as the prophet and who now reigns as the prophet, speaks to his church through his word and offers you a seat if you will trust him at his word. Church in Advent, this is more than a wish. This is not something that you take to wish that you get into heaven. Christ as the prophet comes to you with the promise. I will dine with them. They will sup with me. I will return. Is your hope in this Advent season on a wish of your own thinking? Or is your hope in this Advent season on the promise of the prophet? Chew on that. Praise him and lead us and come to the table as we get ready. Men, come on forward and we'll disperse the elements.